Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Teddy Schleifer. It is Wednesday, July 27. And today, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about the inner conversation in foreign policy circles, what that means in Russia, what that means in Ukraine, and interestingly, what that means in China. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We are joined today by Julia Yaffe, who has been running around the world from Europe to the U.S., Yesterday, we talked with Bill Cohen for the future of the economy. Today, we're here with Julia to talk about the end of the world in, in, a, in a different way. <laughs> Julia, thanks for coming by to spread some summer cheer. Thanks for having me. And by the way, if it sounds like the end of the world outside as I'm recording this, there's like a monsoon typhoon happening outside in D.C. So if you hear any thunder. It's a little bit too, a little bit too on the nose, um, but we, yeah. we appreciate God uh, dropping by. Julia, you've been writing, obviously, about the war in Ukraine, which is now in month six. So yesterday was the five-month mark. Can you use like a, like a medium-term update? Can you take your best crack at like what's been happening over the last couple of weeks that folks who care about this issue but don't have the ability to pay attention every hour to what's going on? What matters right now? What's been going on in, in Ukraine and the conflict there? Sure. So uh, in terms of the what's been happening on the battlefield, Russia has taken most of the Luhansk province, which was where one of the breakaway regions that Russia said it was going to support back in February was based. Uh, now, so Russia has basically taken that whole thing. They've been trying to get the rest of the Donetsk province, which is where the other separatist republic was based, but they've kind of stalled out and... In part, that's kind of on purpose. In part, it's because of their supply lines are a little fucked right now. In part, because of the HIMARS rockets that the U.S. has been providing. Those are the long-range rockets. So it's kind of hard to tell if this is like a pause that the Russians are taking to regroup so that they can push further, or if this is um, like they just can't do anymore. In the meantime... Ukraine is pushing back into the Kherson region, which was one of the first to fall in the war. Russia has been bombarding civilian areas all around Ukraine. And we have, in the last couple of weeks, have seen some really horrific images come out of Ukraine of civilians getting shelled in just the most, you know, mundane, everyday situations. One of the most heartbreaking, I think, was basically an Instagram story that this young woman posted of her taking her four-year-old daughter who had Down syndrome, taking her to a speech therapist. She posted like an Instagram story of them walking to the speech therapist. And then 30 minutes later, the girl was killed by a Russian rocket and the mother was severely injured and had her leg torn off. So it was like this very vivid illustration of how the war was still affecting uh, civilians day to day. The two kind of major, major developments have been on Friday in a deal brokered by the UN and Turkey, Russia and Ukraine signed a deal, though not directly with each other, but with the UN and Turkey signed a deal allowing Ukraine to export its grain. 
and thereby recover some of the billions of dollars it is losing in the war. It's the breadbasket of Europe and of much of the world. And it has lost about half of its GDP in this war. Okay, wow. And it is leading to food crises all over the world, especially in the poorer parts of the world in Africa and South America and in the Middle East. So like in Lebanon, which is already mm. kind of undergoing a an economic catastrophe in the last few years, it's also being hit really hard by the fact that they can't get Ukrainian grain, for example. And you also had the Russians very obnoxiously saying like, actually quite successfully pushing the narrative that this looming famine in parts of the world was not the fault of Russia invading Ukraine and blocking these Ukrainian ports and messing up Ukraine's agricultural industry, but actually somehow the fault of the West for sanctioning Russia. And these narratives were actually taking hold in parts of South America and the Middle East and Africa. And then you also had Russians on state TV bragging about how they could bring the wor world to heal with hunger. They were like, hunger is our great weapon and we're happy to use it, which kind of, of course, brought back some horrific memories for people who remember Soviet history and the ways in which the Soviet Union used hunger to bring certain populations to heal. But of course, less than 24 hours later, Russia shelled Odessa, which is one of the main ports from which the grain was supposed to be exported. And it made people question like, well, how are we supposed to negotiate with these people? Russia was obviously a party to the original agreement, right? I mean, they were correct. They were fine with the grain being exported. 24 hours later, like, sure, you can export the grain, but, you know, <laughs> they're you know, the factories and the trains and the ports, you know, they're not going to be operative. Well, here's the thing. Part of the agreement is we're agreeing not to shell parts of the port that are involved in exporting the grain. And uh, the Russians are like, well, we didn't. We shelled parts of the port that had military objects. So technically, we weren't in violation of the agreement. But it just seems so like demonstrably like such a fuck you to the international community, you know, like we can do whatever we want. And this is what we think of your agreements. And this is what we think of our, of your negotiations. We just want to win this thing. Right. Kind of to me drove home this idea that I've been trying to, trying to explain to people who are new to following Russia, who are like, well, we just have to negotiate our way out of this war. We have to make it stop immediately. We have to give Putin a diplomatic off-ramp. Like, he doesn't want a diplomatic off-ramp. And this is what happens when you give him a diplomatic off-ramp. Like, he just floors it past the exit. He's not a trustworthy negotiator. Julius, that's the first development. Uh, what's the second thing that we should be keeping an eye on out of Eastern Europe? So the second thing, and I'll keep it short because there's a lot of annoying technicalities here, is that Nord Stream 1, which is a gas pipeline connecting Russia to Europe, Northern Europe, was shut down earlier this month for scheduled maintenance. And it is shut down every summer for this maintenance. But given the context and the fact that energy is kind of maybe a weapon that Russia can use in, in this war and maybe something the West can use in terms of sanctioning Russian energy because it's something that keeps the coffers in Russia full and funds the war effort, it became kind of like, well, are they going to turn this Nord Stream 1 back on? Are they not going to turn it back on? So they have turned it back on. 
but it's only operating at partial capacity and it's making everybody extremely nervous because Germany is already tapping into some of its gas reserves and it's not even fall yet. And all the talk now is about how winter is coming, winter is coming, winter is coming. And is Europe going to have, which is very dependent on Russian gas, is it going to have to ration gas? Is it going to have to ration energy in European homes? And if so, what does that do for European public support for sanctions, for Ukraine in this war effort? Um, do people start turning their backs on Ukraine in Europe and decide that they don't want their governments to support the country anymore? So the chickens are coming home to roost. The clouds are gathering on the horizon. You know, pick your metaphor. The realities of this war as it is approaching the six-month mark, it's starting to become more and more real, not just for Russia and Ukraine, but for the broader region and the world. Julia, when we get back, let's talk about some of the other storm clouds on the, on the horizon. We'll be back in a sec. We're back here with Julia Yaffe. Um, Julia, your, your private email is called Tomorrow Will Be Worse. You went to the Aspen Security Forum last week, which is the landmark national security conference um, in in beautiful Colorado. Sounds like the message you heard was tomorrow will be worse. <laughs> Tell me about the, as you put it to me privately, the star of the show, even though you think this conference would be dominated by talk about Russia and Ukraine, it sounds like there's some other worse actors out there that are going to make tomorrow hella scary. Yeah. I should start by saying that this is a very cool and interesting conference for the main reason that it is very small and very intimate. And it brings a pretty high caliber of guests, including from the current administration and from other governments. The head of MI6 of British intelligence, Richard Moore, you know, made his very first public appearance ever. He asked to come and speak this year at the Aspen Security Forum. So the head of MI6, who like, I don't know that people like knew what he looked like before, was just like wandering around, listening to panels. Are people, are people expecting this person to be like James Bond or something? I, I sort of assume that that like... Oh, no, he's just like a really, he kind of looks like, you know, British dad, maybe like more svelte. But, you know, at one point, like, I had to ask him to move so I could get to the water, you know, like. And that was the end of Julia. <laughs> he had like no visible security. It was wild, you know. So it's like that kind of conference where you're just like, oh, I just, what? But so I expected that everybody would be talking about Russia and Ukraine because that's, you know, the issue of the day. And these are kind of national security foreign policy nerds. And to be sure, everybody was talking about that. But the kind of dark horse surprise star of the conference was Ambassador Chin Gang, the ambassador from China to the U.S., who was inter interviewed by Ed Luce from the Financial Times. And uh, holy shit, he was terrifying. Like, there were no diplomatic niceties. There were no fig leaves. I mean... He quoted Lincoln when he was asked about Taiwan and Xinjiang. He quoted Lincoln back to this American audience or mostly American audience by saying, you know, a house divided cannot stand. 
and kept talking about the one China policy and said that the U.S. was being provocative with its Cold War talk and that the U.S. needed to basically shut the fuck up and Biden needed to shut the fuck up with this talk of coming to Taiwan's aid militarily. And it was like both the tone and the substance and the rhetoric were just so aggressive and hostile and again, and the reason I preface it by saying like, this is a very intimate and friendly conference, yeah. right? I, I was about to ask you, was, it, was that like an intentional message delivered for this audience of kind of elite Western national security officials? Or is this just like, you know, he didn't sleep well at the, uh, at the, at the lodge? It must okay. have been because people were shocked. It was bracing. People were shocked even as it was happening. People were like looking around and being, and like, looking at each other and mouthing like, holy shit to mm. each other. I was outside watching it and happened to be standing with some uh, DOJ officials who were like, is this like the prelude to World War III? Because this sounded really scary. That was, I think, like the first full day of the conference. And for the rest of the conference, that's all anybody talked about. When I left and I was waiting on the tarmac for my bags in Denver, like, that's what people were talking about on the tarmac. And I'm guessing that that was not an accident. I'm guessing he was sent there. Like, this is a very elite audience of policymakers. Does he do a lot of media appearances? I don't think so. Okay. okay. I don't think so. So this is not like his, like, stump speech that he that he gives all the time and just like, okay, let's do the Aspen version of it. Like, you think this is a man on a mission? I don't think so. I think it was hard to get him to speak there. Like, it was a very, from what I understand, a pretty involved negotiation of like what topics would and wouldn't be addressed. And then he was upset that some of those topics were addressed in the end. He was pretty pissed from what I understand. But I get the sense that he was sent there to deliver this message, like to kind of dump a bucket of ice water on everybody's head. In some ways, it's very effective, right? Like you have this audience that is, you have administration officials, you have spooks, you have foreign policy scholars, you have journalists, you have this like very elite audience that, sets the tone and makes American foreign policy and national security policy. And if you want to help them set the tone, this is what you do. And he clearly wanted to wake us the fuck up, I think. And, you know, now seeing how the Chinese government is pushing back on a potential visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, which I think in the past, in the past would have been a total nothing burger, I think. Like the stink they're making about it. It seems like they're just getting a lot more like drawing red lines and being pretty aggressive about saying like, we are not fucking around anymore. You guys don't seem to be understanding this when we're giving you like a feedback sandwich. So we're going to say it very plainly. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, people were really terrified by his panel and hilariously was called like a fireside chat (laughs) julia thank you so much for uh telling us just how much worse tomorrow will be oh no i'm so sorry no problem thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder the powers that be is the official podcast of puck we'd like to thank ben landy liz goff and alex bigler for their editorial and production guidance If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 